welcome to another episode of the Vikingology Podcast. The art and science of the Viking Age. Yeah, here we are a week later. This is great. I like it when there's not so much time in between the episodes. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, so, well, today we have an interesting treat. So we've been talking to a lot of scholars about particular areas of study in the Viking Age. Um, but today we're going to talk about actually something we started talking about a little bit with Soren Sinbeck last week, and that is how Vikings are interpreted and presented to the public and museums and things like that. And so we are very, very fortunate to have with us. Ellen Maria Ness, who is an archaeologist and lecturer um, in the Department of Education and Public Services at the Museum of Cultural History in Oslo, Norway. So welcome all the way from Oslo. Hi, thank you. Happy to be Hi. here. Yeah. And um, you also work with exhibitions. And so you've definitely um, had some good firsthand experience with uh, the very, very famous ships that are in the Oslo Museum there, uh, which is currently closed. And so this is why we wanted to have you on because it closed and the construction began this year for creating a whole new museum. And if anybody's ever been there, you will know this. Uh, and I was lucky enough to go there with my husband back in 2012, but it's an extraordinary experience to see these Viking ships. And they're going to get a new home now, which is great. And so that's what we wanted to talk to you about, sort of what, what the plans are. And, you know, for people who maybe don't know what these ships are and what they're all about and um, and all of that. So welcome. And why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about you, maybe a little bit more about your role at the museum and also just about the old museum and what was there before we kind of transition into why there was there's there's going to be a new one. Mm -hmm. So uh, you just asked me to talk briefly about my favorite topic. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I have this certain Viking ship crush, but who hasn't? Yeah. So uh, I've been working at the old museum for a long time. Um, and the old museum was incredible, beautiful architecture. And with the ships inside, that just they were just smashing. But they were... This this museum was never, never, actually never, not even on the first day, op big enough for for all those all the visitors who wanted to see the ships. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is that it took incredible long time from from the moment where they have found the third ship. Well, I'm jumping to conclusions here because they started with the tuna ship, then they found the Goksta ship, and then they found the Oseberg ship. And then the country found out that they actually had three sensational, beautiful evidence of the past of the Viking period in the university garden. And they started to realize that they needed a museum. And then they started a long and slow and hard process to build it. And it wasn't really complete until in the 50s. Uh, but then it was uh, actually, it was even drawn as a mausoleum for the Viking ships. And they were beautiful. Uh, and you could understand, understand that those ships were really the vessel in life and death for some incredible rich and important people but you didn't get anything more. Not that it's not enough with three Viking ships, I mean, hi. <laughs> uh, but you didn't get the whole story. 
there was nothing there to tell about the farmers and the children and the slaves and the traders and all the other people. And that's what we will do now. So, I mean, uh, if you want to just try to to slip in a question, if not, I can talk about this favorite topic for hours. So, <laughs> well, I, I actually do have one right right off the bat because you mentioned the the tuna ship, then the Grokstad, then the Augsburg, right? So, my sure, yeah, my understanding is. Uh, for some reason, I had it in my head that the Gokstad was the first one found, but I guess it was the tuna. But before that, there I mean, these are, we're talking about the first, not just the first ships found in Norway, but the first ships found ever. This is the late 19th century. I think it was the 1880s for the Gokstad on the Gokstad farm. Uh, before that, Viking ships were actually considered somewhat semi-mythical. We only had the, the picture stones in Sweden to tell us that they had these ships and then some some uh written evidence for it but before that we didn't have a physical specimen so no one was really sure what they looked like and how they looked could you speak a little bit to those discoveries and how they changed the perception perhaps of or or the course of how we approach the subject they absolutely did because it's it's right what you said that before uh, the tuna ship was excavated no one really knew they had the sagas there were the the the, the picture stones. But that again is just half truth. And it's kind of annoying since scholars or the uh, the the people in universities and the bigger towns, they seems to have forgotten to talk to the normal people, the fisher fishermen and women who were actually using this kind of boats, even though smaller, until quite recently. So there was this boat building tra tradition that was very much alive. So it's not really true. If they just if they had just looked around and they, they would have seen smaller Viking ships all over the place, but they didn't. So uh, so since they didn't, you're absolutely right. When they found the tuna ship, the uh, at last you could uh, people could imagine how those Viking ships must have been when they were new. How, would, how did they find it? This was uh, excavated uh, on a farm. And since it was uh, so early, there were no real archaeology going on. Uh, and they really just hacked it out and pulled it out. Uh, and you can, if when you look carefully on the tuna ship today, you can actually see some marks of shovels on it. It's, yeah, it's a bit painful, but that was the best they could do. Uh, and uh, when they found the Gokster ship, it was slightly better. They spent slightly more time on that, and it was excavated uh, a bit better. Uh, but when the Oseberg ship was excavated, it was real archaeology going on. So that's also one of the first scientific excavations that happened at all. They took pictures, they made drawings, they took measurements, they were taking samples. Uh, they were really high-tech high and really advanced for the time. 
Yeah, if you can um, maybe get a sense from from this picture and the other one I'll show of the Ausaberg, but um, you know, when you go into the building, like you were saying, it was meant to be a mausoleum for these ships. But I mean, I felt like it was like a church. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, it, I mean, and obviously, I think that's part of the whole the intent of the place. But it did definitely feel like you know a spiritual experience of some of kind right when you're just sort of there communing with just, just these ships and it's quiet and you know and yeah it's it's just I can't explain it a, a, enough to do it justice it's just a really really extraordinary experience to be in the same place with these boats and they're 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 big and you know the, the probably one of the more famous images of the Gokstad this one and when I show this to my students I'm just like all right we're just going to pause and we're just going to look at this <laughs> because if there is nothing if you, if you do not see beauty in the crafting of this vessel then you're missing the whole point <laughs> You do, and there is something going on there that I don't think it's so easy to to explain with words. But we had in this old museum a bunch of school kids, and you had this moment with these super cool fourteen years old boys, and they were just standing there saying, "Wow." Yeah. <laughs> you make fourteen-year-old boys speechless, then you know you've got something. Here. Exactly, or you know that there was something here that. Um, is simply human to feel, even though you're a very super cool 14-year-old boy. Yeah, so I want to go back to the tuna, because obviously you can see it's it's much more, um, you know, fragmentary than the other two ships are. And so do we, we have a sense of what this one was used for? Was it like a little cargo ship or a little traveler or... It's the smallest one of the three, uh, and as you can see on this picture, it has a really huge and solid fastening for the mast. So it was made to carry a, quite a big sail compared to, to the size of the ship. So it must have been a quite fast, relatively light ship. I mean, of course, it could be used to everything, but you, you can imagine that it will be very suitable to transport troops, to transport humans. Wonder how high up the sides came then, you know, sort of because obviously the way it looks, you know, it's pretty shallow, so it doesn't look like it could carry yeah, much. It's, it's lacking, lackling uh, some some uh, some plantings. What you can see here is the line where the clay went. Since as a all three ships has been used as burial ships, um, and they were buried slightly down into the into the clay uh, and. Uh, burial mound was raised above that. So the ships, and that goes for uh, certainly this, but also for the three others, they are preserved as long as it, uh, uh, where, is, where it is, sorry, uh, airproof. Mm. So when you get down into the clay, there is no oxygen, and that's why it preserved, and the rest of the ship disappeared. There was also a burial chamber in this and some grave goods, but that uh, disappeared as well uh, during the excavation. Or, yeah, I think we can call it an excavation, even though it wasn't a real one. Yeah. I, uh, so, I, I have a question that might be too broad in scope for our show, but it's just to put it out there. Maybe, Ellen, you have some, some words to share on it. I'm thinking of archaeology as a field, as a discipline, and how it came about and how it improved and developed over time. And I wonder where where 
these burial mounds with ships place within the context of that broader development of archaeology as a field. I'm wondering how how much how much the mistakes made, for example, with the tuna ship and then and then the Gogstad and then leading to the Osberg, it influenced the field as a whole globally, right? Because I, you know, to my when we look at this subject, we go back to, you know, the 19th century. And, um, you know, as far as I know, most of archaeology or the like the the meaty stuff, the good stuff was happening in the 20th century, right? You know, even the excavations yeah, of quite a lot. Romans and Greeks and, and so forth. So this, it almost seems like these things started being found before archaeology was really well established. But also I, I, I'm ignorant of, you know, how it was developing in other countries, but at least in Norway is that the, this is the, this is what made it necessary to develop it as a field. So I don't know if you could speak to that, like how it influenced archaeology in general. Um, or it, it has, of course, something to do with the de development of science as in general, because scientists yeah. and scholars are stepping on each other's shoulders and improving. But uh, you need personalities, you need people in the field who are willing to step one step further than others. And in the case of the Oseberg, uh, there was a man who did that, uh, Gustafsson, the archaeologist. He was really thinking ahead. Uh, and he spent time on documentation that people hadn't bothered to do before. So talk about the um, Gokstad as a burial ship. Um, I understand it. So it was a single individual, as far as we know, right? A male that was buried in this. And then, um, so what? what is it we know maybe about him, his age or anything like that, or method or how he died? And then what What? What are all the grave goods that were part of this ship? Yeah, for this, for the Gokster ship and the Osberg ship, we have some grave goods per set. For the tuna ship, there is hardly anything. So in the Gokster ship, we know that there was a male, a man. He was around his 40 uh, when he died. Uh, and he might have died a violent death, but we are not really 100% sure, maybe. Uh, and he was buried in a ship. And from the grave goods, it seems to be that he had some contacts in towards the east, which is interesting. And there is also a small trading a trading place nearby at almost the same time where uh, there has been found a lot of DRMs. So it seemed to be a guy with a broad uh, net contact, uh, net of contacts. And he was a part of this huge trading network in the Viking Age. And he had this power because this kind of burial were not for everyone, there were very, very few persons or families, and they will do anything that they could to tell other people that they were directly related to the gods, and that's why they had this power. So very special guy, but it, he, he was alone in the grave. Was he Norwegian? Do we know? He lived in the Viking Age, and he was a Viking. Norway as a country didn't exist. Well, yeah, <laughs> fair, fair, fair point. <laughs> was he, 
was he born in what is now Norway? <laughs> uh, you are you are uh, kind of pushing for some DNA, aren't you? Yeah, we, we don't have that. Some, some isotopic analysis showing where he grew up. We don't have a DNA result now. Like that. It might come uh, uh, later, but at this moment, we don't have that. Well, he was buried you there, so, very... you know. People did travel in the Viking period, so he could mm -hmm. have been born somewhere else very easily, but we don't know. At least we don't know for now. But then again, we, we have those uh, graves and the ships and the burials. They're so familiar to us, but uh, still we do not know any, uh, everything. There's a lot so of research to be done. What what were the um, things that were buried with him? Where they are? What, uh, I didn't... what, what do you what, what do you were there animals? Were there? I mean, I imagine they're probably shields, weapons, all kinds of stuff. Uh, the the uh, mount has been robbed, uh, or we call it robbed, but it's political. Uh, but it's probably more a political act. New new rulers coming in, destroying the old graves. So weapons and jewelry, if it was there, it has been removed. So it's not found. But still, he was um, found with equipment for hunting and for sailing. There were three smaller boats in here. And one of my favorite objects is actually a very small little cheapness thing. It's a little iron, iron fishing hook. And I think it's so fascinating because I can imagine how this guy went out with a smaller boat to go fishing. I think he simply liked it, but that's my imagination. <laughs> then he, he got uh, a bed. Uh, he got um, yeah uh, all the shields on this ship, 64 shields. Um, and dogs, horses, two peacocks, and a falcon. So it's not bad. How many horses? There were eight. Eight, okay. I was just in Denmark in August and we went to see the Ladby ship. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of in my mind as far as comparison. Similar, it sounds like maybe that, that one had 11 horses and I think like three dogs or something, but. Yeah, but then of course, draw the two women in the Oseberg ship was topping the whole thing with the 15 horses. Right, yeah. So you know, women. Always need to have more. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so something we talked about in our last podcast, uh, which was the the reasoning or, or motivation behind burying these ships. Why were they buried? I mean, this is a time when cremation was commonplace. Uh, but then we have these ultra wealthy people who are burying themselves with their ships under under mounds. And, and the the one piece of that that I've learned over time or that's been proposed is that they were going to sail to the next life or something like that, right? Like take their ship and oh. all their goods and all their stuff and go to the next life with all of it. But uh, in our last podcast, there was another idea that was floated around, which was from Soren Sindebeck, who said, well, they buried this obviously because they wanted it to eventually be found like a time capsule. Uh, could you speak to what the current scholarship and and what the museum is displaying as like the rationale behind why they buried themselves with their ships and all their stuff 
love to, and I wish I knew. Uh, all we could say is it's complicated. <laughs> but let let's start with the Vikings and their let's admit it weird ideas of how to leave your loved ones because they did that in so many ways. There were really not one way to bury people, but in general, it had to do with uh, class more than gender. And some families got a certain kind of burials and those huge ship burials and that specific type of burial. But then we have um, people who seem to be more like average people buried in smaller boats. So bury people in a boat has been um, rather common. And it's seen uh, as a trans vessel for transportation, perhaps to the kingdom of death or wherever they were going. But then it started to be complicated. Because, okay, we can accept that the ships has been a vessel and they were supposed to transport the dead person somewhere. And like the Oseberg ship, it was ready to go with some of the oars already sticking out of the oar holes. So it was really ready. But it was still moored very solid around a huge boulder. So it was ready for departure, but it shouldn't go anywhere. And Ra researcher has claimed that the reason for that is that those at least one or perhaps both of the two women, they had some religious skills. Uh, there might have been some kind of priestess or vulvas with some sp special skills. And it was important for their family at the farm that they wouldn't leave. And if they went as dead persons uh, on a shamanic journey, uh, which they then perhaps did when they were alive, and why to stop that just because they were dead. If they went on such a journey, it was quite important for the soul to be able to find back to the body. And if the ship started to move towards some kind of kingdom of death or whatever, maybe the soul will lose the body and you will have a very annoyed ghost at the farm. And that's something that they wouldn't have. So um, that's another theory, and I kind of like it because it's also explain or tell us that the human mind is not and never has been straightforward, especially when it's coming to religious belief and what's happening uh, after 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 death and this kind of thing. It's it's complicated. I think it's interesting because uh, it brings to mind for me, um, I know that in the ancient Egyptian world, they had similar types of beliefs where some of the mm. you know, higher status burials all the way up to pharaohs and stuff where they would include even, you know, some kind of visual representation if they could, a painting or something like that of the person um, because of the same kind of concern that the Ka, when it came back to sort of re-enliven this person for the afterlife, that, you know, if something happens and they couldn't find the person or recognize them. And so they would put in these little sort of signifiers of, yeah, you got the right person here, um, so that they wouldn't be separated like that, sort of the soul and the body for the afterlife. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, it sounds like it's kind of a, a just a, a human thing on some level. And then uh, you have this idea that uh, some people in the myth, they went to Valhalla or, or, or they went to Hell or something like that would seem to be very straightforward, but it is not all uh, because there has been a, a belief that the dead people will continue to live within sacred mountains or within the burial mounds uh, at the farm. And that also goes for common people. And no, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but I'm quite intrigued myself. And I think it must have been very hard for those people living at an age where Christianity came and they were forced to bury their dead ones at the churchyard, uh, which meant that they had to take the dead ones who actually really believed in the family, although they were dead, they were going to stay there as ghosts. And they had to take those people away from the family and bury them somewhere else. Bury them somewhere else. That must have been incredible hard. So I think they could live with a lot of these changes when, we alleged, uh, when the Christianity took over, but that one must have been painful. Yeah, we saw yep. we saw some of that with the uh, supposed grave of Egil Skallagrimson, where the bodies had been moved underneath the church. And uh, oh. yes, yeah, so that is an interesting development of, you know, oh, we're, we're changing religions now. So let's pull everybody out of the ground and put them in the ground again, but slightly differently, you know. <laughs> yeah, but we're doing more or less the same anyway. And just for yeah. the interesting thing, since we are uh, approaching Christmas uh, or Yule and all that, people on the farms in Norway, they're still going out on Christmas Eve, putting out food. They, they will say to the grandchildren that it is for the little people, but the tradition is actually the tradition of putting out food for, for the ancestors, which ah. I think totally fascinating that you're taking your grandchildren out to give some food for grandfather. Yeah, because we know they practiced ancestor worship on some level that those people, I, I was sorry, I explained to my students that the, the sort of the, the line between the living and the dead is much more porous for those people than it is for us now. Um, that those, even though that people had died, that they're still with you somehow, but in very, I mean, we, we think that now too. I mean, we have memories and all that, but I think it was more real for them in some way. And I remember um, reading, I think it was Neil Price had an article that I, I've shared with my students called, um, I can't remember the full title, but it's Nine Paces from Hell. And it's about the whole kind of performative aspect of these types of burials. And I think even is talking about the Oseberg as far as maybe even being only partly buried in that mound, but partly exposed so that the living can still kind of return to it and continue to interact with it. Is, is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of things going on when somebody is dead and is going to be buried, and you had uh, and the Vikings would think that they needed to take precautions f towards evil spirits uh, that will be released at this very dangerous moment. And these ideas, we have knowledge about that from some very few written sources like Ibn Fadlan, but when we are com combining that with Oseberg, which is the one and only grave ship uh, since it's providing so much information because it's so well preserved. 
we do some we do get uh, a little glimpse of this uh idea this world of ideas and certain order and uh, the um, acts that needed needed to be performed during this funeral is the droiger isn't it that they were trying to avoid the, the 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 ghosts who sort of end up in the liminal space between here and there and then they can yeah, just... there were probably more but uh, we have in Osberg well a lot of interesting stuff but there are five very beautiful carved animal heads I'm sure you might have seen the pictures on some patient books uh, and those uh, places but we believe now that they probably had something to do with protection to protect the living towards everything evil that will be uh, loose in this funeral uh, situation. So in looking at this, then, uh, as it's kind of, you know, in situ and it's mound there as it was being excavated, is this kind of raised part here? Are the, the two women who are buried in this ship, are they in there? No, but there are other pictures will show that because there will be in more or less that spot. But the reason why it's raised there is because the ship has been bent on uh, in, in both ends. So it's bent the wrong way mm. due to the heavy soil that has pressed it into, into, into the ground. Uh, and there is something else on this picture uh, that I would like to draw your attention to. Uh, you said that there is a theory that the ship should be a display for the after, uh, that that for us, for, for a, like mm -hmm. a time capsule. And the reason why I can't really believe or agree with that is that um, in this clay, there shouldn't be any stones naturally. But when you see close at this picture, there are stones exactly where you're pointing there and towards the rudder. They're huge stones, but they are uh, small enough for a reasonable strong person to lift it and throw it into the into the burial to smash things on purpose. Uh, so uh, the Osberg ship has everything has been put inside carefully, and then it has been destroyed. And we can see the same thing going on in a lot of Viking graves with those very bent swords that have been really destroyed before they've been put in the grave. And it seems to be an idea that those things should not be seen and not be used by any living person. They should be used by dead persons, but not by the living. So I've heard this described, the Oseberg, as the most extravagant Viking ship burial that we have found to date. And I know in the Ibn Fadlan account that you were mentioning earlier, he describes a whole process that takes about 10 days to carry out. I'm, I'm just kind of trying to imagine with this, I mean, because I know I've seen the list and I share it with my students of all of the grave goods that were found in this boat and it's unbelievable. I mean, there is just so much stuff. And so I can imagine like how long would it take them to bury these two women and be like, okay, well, we're done. <laughs> a long time, a really long time. What, what I, I don't know how long time, but just imagining burying this ship first to, to dig this pit to put it in then drag the ship ashore, uh, ashore and up to where it was buried 
and then covered with clay. And all of that done with wooden shovels. Okay, they had slaves to do that, but they still needed to choose not to use the slave to produce food. So a lot of energy and resources put into this burial. And it has to do with politics, of course, in the end. It was simply important for this family to demonstrate their power and to demonstrate for the next generations and the people around who was in charge. Well, the, the Oseberg in particular stands apart from the three because it it's not considered, this is what I've read, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not considered ocean worthy, right? Like it's not, it wasn't meant to be sailed is part of the thought of like may, maybe it, you know, went into a fjord here and there, but uh, outside of that, like it, it's there's there's a a theory out there that it was built explicitly to be buried for this purpose, yeah. right? The, the theory has been uh, uh, what? Uh, sorry, I'm looking uh, lacking my words there. But um, uh, the reason that we really do not believe in that theory anymore, you will find it on the internet and in books. But there has been research going on on the Oseberg ship. And uh, since the Oseberg ship was found in this condition that we can see on this picture, uh, then it needed to be assembled. And it was not assembled correctly, which means that the angle on the pro is not correct, as you can see the Viking, the, the Oseberg ship today. Uh, and with this false angle on the pro, uh, it's not so severe. The copies made out of this, what you see now, has proved not to be very good. And the wave around the keel has been stared directly into the ship, which is not so good. And then has been made uh, copies based on uh, the theory how those bits and pieces would have been assembled in a slightly different way and that's proved very seaworthy okay so it's a it's a theory that came out of of uh, a mistake in the reconstruction really and exactly. so now we're trying to correct that okay that was the short version yes but yeah. so uh, so the Oseberg ship is not as good at Gokstar, but it's still seaworthy enough that's interesting because i was actually thinking about that a little bit earlier and was going to ask you I've been, because i've been into um I spend a lot of time in Iceland and they have, of course, in the Viking World Museum there, right, a, a replica of the Gokstad, which is beautifully like hung from the ceiling. So it's so cool to experience. But I mean, it it that's not the only ship that has been a recreation of the Gokstad. And so it seems like people more, you know, if they're going to try to make a Viking ship and see if it'll sail, they use the the design of the Gokstad and not this one. Yeah, uh, until they build the 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 copy of Oseberg uh, that they have built in Westfall the last few years, which is very seaworthy. Okay. Uh, but that's also based on this rec new reconstruction of the old Oseberg ship. Okay. So what it tells us is that this reenactment and rebuilding and testing is incredibly important. It gives us so much information that we simply can't get for from just drawings and books and pictures uh, testing is simply important 
So I'm going to stop this share here. There we go. So um, tell us a little bit about, you know, these two women. So I know we don't have the, the genetics and all of that as well. So we don't really know who they are, but just the extraordinary nature of here we have the, the, the biggest, best, most famous biking ship burial in the history of the world. And it's of two women, which is crazy. My favorite topic. <laughs> there, uh, I'm really, I, I'm so fascinated by those two women. I never get enough, uh, really. They're just, I, I think the reason why they're so fasc fascinating is not because they're women, it's because we do know some things about their life, but not everything. So, still some mystery around them. And the fact that there are two women buried in a grave which is connected to power shouldn't surprise it us, uh, us at all. Because even though men and women were different and had different tasks and roles also in the Viking period, women could have power. So uh, that shouldn't be very surprising. What we guess but i'm not sure uh, is that one of the two women might have been offered to follow the first one in in the grave yeah uh it could be the younger one could be the older one but we really do not know that either but uh, there are arguments for both the older one in this grave she was a really really old woman she was almost 80. Uh, but then again, why shouldn't uh, really an uh, old woman have power when she was a member or even the matriarch of a very important family? Shouldn't be anything against that. Um, she seemed to have died of cancer. But then again, it might happen. You need to die of something and she was old. Uh, but then there is an, the, the younger woman, woman, she's around 20. Uh, she could have been a less, a less status person. Uh, but if she belongs in this, or, or if she was the one who was offered, she at least needed to be a high status person because if the older one was the main person, uh, she would have her status would have demanded an offering of equal status or at least very high status if not the gods will be disappointed and we wouldn't have that but we can also have the, op the other way around that uh, younger lady uh, in this grave was the main person and the old one was offered to her but with the same argumentation they wouldn't have killed the old woman because she was old and were going to die anyway but because uh, but because she had a certain role a certain position that made her an high status of a gift and so um, the younger one was about 20 you said yeah oh i because i've always thought that i read that she was like maybe around 50. oh sorry yeah you're right that was <laughs> my, my bad uh, uh, I've been. I tried to very quick to 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 skip some of the argumentation that has been done through the years, and that was my bad, because she had 
teeth that are not very worn. Mm. And since the argumentation in when she was excavated was that she must have been the slave. She must have been young since the teeth were not wrong, hence 20. Mm. But we know now that she was 50. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Mixing up. No, because I thought, okay, maybe there's been some new science that I haven't heard no, of yet. But, no, yeah. it, uh, it's the old science that I jumped into. And the she skeleton. Just, she looked really young for her age. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> she looks really good. When you don't eat a lot of processed food, right, CJ? <laughs> <laughs> no, she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, what I think is fascinating, also, and you have been made, you, and you have made episodes of the the how we use the Viking period for political and uh, other modern reasons, and Olsenberg is also. Uh, a part of that story and that brings us back to this 20 year old woman again and may I uh, so try to sort my thought and try since this uh, burial was excavated in 1904 uh, Norway were then still a part of Sweden and Norway was a uh, independent nation, nation the year after which means that in 1904 there were very strong uh, feelings and movements in society that Norway should be an independent nation. And what uh, they needed back then was a strong national history, or that they believed that they needed it. I don't think they did, but they believed that. And they needed a Viking king. And then uh, the excavation of Oseberg happened, and there were definitely a woman inside, or actually two. Uh, so the archaeologists and the society would think, oh, there, what to do? Uh, so they were looking into the sagas and they tried to fit a story that matched this need of a strong king. So we don't have a male king. We might have the mother or the grandmother or something of a king. So they tried to force this into fit so that the old woman in Oseberg way will be the Queen Osa, the grandmother of the King Harald with the fair hair, who was said to have collected Norway to one kingdom, which he didn't, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then the younger woman needed to be a slave offered to Queen, uh, to Queen Osa to make the whole thing fit. And then this thing with the teeth come in that, okay, she has uh, not very worn teeth, but she because she's a slave, she needs to be young. If not, they would, the teeth have, would have been much more worn. Uh, and this beautiful story has been in school books until today, and in some of the books it still is. Uh, and if you Google Rosenberg, you will find this story very quick. It's simply so beautiful. And then you have a queen with a name, and what's not to like about that. But it's just that it doesn't fit. And for me, we don't need it either. I think they're just as fascinating as they are. I don't need a name. 
that's like that's modern mythology creation right there right yeah. um, and and I I as a historian I'll tell you what's wrong with it <laughs> it obfuscates the actual truth and so then everybody just buys into the myth going forward and then nobody bothers to to find yeah, out that's the thing but we have we have used it for school kids though because when they they come to the museum I and mean, they have read this and ah uh, oh, that's uh, the queen uh, queen also we can use it to to, uh, to talk about source criticism which is nice yeah that's good well but forcing things to fits my job as a historical fiction author right like i yeah i get all okay, my facts in a row that. and i go okay this doesn't fit but uh you know i still had to tell this story my job is to tell a story first and be good at history second and so then i make it fit but see that's that's the issue is is historians shouldn't be doing that that's that's my job and then and then i put it in the back you know i say this is what the history is and here's where i fudged it a little bit Right. <laughs> and I and I admit like, oh, yeah, well, this part, I made it up, you know, and people will ask yeah. like, oh, is this true? No, I made it up, you know, and, and that's why at the beginning I say this is a work of fiction. Uh, but that's the that's actually the strong suit of of historical fiction, I find, is is if it inspires curiosity to then research the real thing and figure out, you know, I always used to say if somebody in 20 years comes up to me and goes, hey, I read your book and you're wrong. And I go, uh work accomplished <laughs> you went down the rabbit hole and you think and you learned it all so that's uh that's great but yeah it's uh but that obfuscation is kind of interesting because then they're it's you're they're creating they're trying to make it fit the national narrative and most national narratives are ultimately fictions with a purpose yep yeah well see, tell her the story that you told uh soren last week about being encouraged to not to include the real history in um in your book about the bead remember about trading a bead for a person oh yeah no that was for that was a fur trade sorry i was thinking vikings i was like oh, beads <laughs> beads i don't know they put them in their beers and stuff <laughs> no uh, yeah 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 no i i did I, the original version of the story uh, they they went out west, and actually, I have it in my history book here, where they talk about you know the the um, the currency, you know, the uh, Native Americans along the Missouri River traded in in glass beads, and so if you brought a big bag of glass beads, you could buy you could buy yourself uh, a Native princess, and uh, fur trappers actually used to do this frequently because it was convenient to have a young Native woman with a teepee and who could do all the household essentially all the household chores while you were out trapping and hunting and so forth. Uh, and somebody you could come back to to you know fix your clothes and wash. And so this was a, a this is a well known phenomena uh, that was going on during the fur trade. But I had it in my book, and then my editor recommended that I cut it out because it would alienate my readers because it was so jarring. Um, and so I had to alter it. And so now it is altered where you know I they they still pay for her, but in a different way, in in a more PC modern. <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, like I walked that tightrope. Yeah, it's like what we're talking about here, kind of like the cleaning up of, you know, the sanitizing of history. Because like Soren, right. I guess what I was remembering, Soren mentioned that, you know, in Ibn Fadlan's account, they mentioned that he mentions that, right? That you can actually buy slave women from the Rus for, you know, one, what, green bead mm -hmm. or something like that. So, um, I mean, because Ellen, you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the museum like didn't include, you know, the ordinary people and the slaves and all of that. So how is the new museum going to incorporate kind of some of more of this sort of, you know, unsavory aspects of the Viking age? We'll do our best. It, it is it, it is a, it is really a problem that we we do have 
a lot of objects. I mean, really, this museum is going to have, including coins, around five and a half thousand objects is a lot. But since objects that are preserved to us are mainly object that has been used by rich people, we do have a source problem. And uh, this that's the thing with slaves and the poor people that they actually haven't left anything. Mm. So we need to put the pieces together, uh, rely on some, on, so, on some written sources and try to include them as well as we can. Like one example that I kind of like myself, uh, we are going to start this museum. The first thing that you will see or meet are the remains of the tools of a woman. And, and they were incredibly rich. And we will follow the burial procession towards the ship. Along the sides, we want to have 10 uh, showcases, uh, each of them uh, showing the grave of a Viking, a woman. Um, we, I'm using Viking here as a people uh, living in the Viking period. That's the definition I use just to make that clear. But we will have men, women, even a child, and there will be one showcase which is empty in the middle uh, to represent those who are not there. And then we have DRMs. We have a lot of DRMs. And recent research has shown that they are really blood money. And we are going to tell that. Uh, not only show them as piles of silver, the way they have previously almost always been displayed. There will still be piles of silver, but we want to say something of what they were used for. So uh, yes, we will include also the slaves and the poor people. The question is if the busy tourists who are running through this museum will see the ships, the Viking helmets, the gold and run, rush out again if he will get it but at least we will have it there for those who are spending a little bit of more time they should be able to see it yeah i think the controversy we were we were going we we approached last last podcast had to do with there are there are museums out there that um that are tailoring those certain displays that you just talked about um in a in a specific way to attract more tourists basically for you the concern is all right we're going to do it this way will the tourists get it the other museums are saying tourists won't get it so let's make it so that it will be alluring to tourists let's speak to them their language their you know in a world of identity politics let's you know cater to their own self-identification with this to to generate more money but then they're they're altering the interpretation of history to suit the economic needs of the museum rather than displaying the true, right, um, leading, you know, academic uh, uh, frameworks. Yeah, but, but, but it is difficult since the knowledge about this is so, so mega. And so, but, but then again, it is okay to to say in an uh, object text or a small text in a museum that we do know this and this, we do not know that. And that's okay. Uh, and people are not stupid, I understand that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think because of the fact that your museum is connected to the University of Oslo, at least for me, I feel like, okay, there's a, you know, there's a research mission that's behind this as well, that it's not just simply curation of art or, or, you know, things that, you know, okay, a public education, but, but that, you know, there's not as much research really going on behind it. Um, and, and so, um, I'm hopeful for that, you know, as far as having those two things be together so that that it doesn't sell out <laughs> just to the to the tourist stuff. I mean, because this stuff is so it, it's so interesting. And um, and but actually, though, I mean, Soren did ask last week, right, CJ, where he's like, you know, there's a lot of Scandinavian history besides just this tiny sliver of the Viking age. And so it's like, why is it that all these major museums everywhere in Scandinavia feel like they have to have this major Viking thing going on? But I mean, for you guys, I guess I would argue probably, well, you have the ships. So yeah. like, you, you can't really ignore these giant, lovely things. And so, you know, I suppose you could leave them in the vault somewhere and not bring them out, but why would you do that? <laughs> we could, uh, but that's not the point with archaeology and objects. The point is to to display them for the public. So no, we couldn't. Yeah, but there will be objects, of course, that we are not putting on display. We can't display everything, but we are displaying a lot. Well, as I mentioned last week, I mean, I also, before I became an academic, I have several years of experience working in museums and I was working in the registrar's office, which is the, you know, department that's responsible for the care and preservation of the collection. So we're the, the we're like the little mousy people down in the vault, you know, that never see the light of day during, during the daytime. But I was uh, involved in the Portland Art Museum here when we did a major vault move. And I feel for you all I know what it's like to close a museum and then carefully did you know disassemble the objects in the exhibits and put them away and then move them somewhere else and then oh. it's insanely involved people have no idea how much it it's takes to properly care for these things yeah yeah and we cannot just put them in in a bag uh it's not right. it doesn't happen like that right so then um with you all being in Oslo, but it being now the 21st century, I actually, because of the closure, one of the things I do is I link up for my students um, in one of the modules of our class, you have a, a digital walkthrough of the old space so that they can at least mm -hmm. kind of get a sense of it and look at some of the objects firsthand and stuff. So is everybody going to be forced to come to Oslo or are you guys also going to now have, uh, you know, some kind of a digital component to your exhibit so that other people in the world can also enjoy your new museum? Yeah, that's for sure. Well, um, that uh, It's not the, uh, planned in detail yet, but that will happen. There will be like this digital uh, films and, and tours, but I really also uh, rely on us to have digital lectures and talks it, it's so easy with with uh, with the computers that it's really possible to do that's something we have learned the last years that you don't need to come to oslo to to take part in a lecture in this viking museum of the viking age although you should go to oslo i have to say <laughs> yeah you should go but you don't need to <laughs> Yeah. Plus where that museum is. Well, for one thing, I remember we took a boat across to get to where it is. So that's kind of a cool thing. You sort of arrive there like a Viking on the water and then you get out and you go to the museum and then you walk just down the road and you go to the open air museum and you see all yeah. these 
interesting examples of um, housing from from Norway uh, throughout the ages. So that's also, I think, a really cool. Uh, you've got a whole cultural sort of area going on there for history. It's it's pretty amazing. And um, if you go to Norway, take the public transportation. Don't rent a car because of the whole issue going on with Norway offers such lucrative incentives for buying electric vehicles that too many people bought cars people who normally wouldn't have bought cars bought electric cars and now the traffic's a nightmare because there's so many more people on the road that should be taking public transportation so just fair warning you know they're they're having a little bit of a traffic issue so take public transportation it's really good <laughs> yeah take take the boat well, so you were mentioning um, a, a bit ago about the whole creation of the, the myth in the er earlier part of the 20th century. Um, I mean, and I'm not going to ask you to speak for all of Norway or all Norwegians and stuff, but in general, how do Norwegians feel about this Viking heritage and history there and this museum? Do they all, do they support it and love it? Yes, they do. <laughs> Good. But, uh, that, that really people do, uh, but with uh, different reasons though. Uh, and is this for both people who are into history? We want to find this humans of the past somehow. We have this need to to understand them. And then there are other people who just say that, well, uh, it's a, it's a long history. It's cool. Uh, and some people have some national pride in it, and different different reasons. But after really half a life working with Vikings and the Viking ships and people enjoying the, this museum really and has an emotional experience in the museum. Uh, I have this theory that the thing with this little slot of history, which is special, is that you know some facts, but you don't get the whole picture. So it's enough, it's enough there to leave for your imagination, but you still have some facts to put it on. And I think this mixture creates much of the magic. Because it is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, I'm a historian, so I kind of preach yeah. into the fire. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, Welcome to the nerdy okay. world. But, but really, we are not alone here. Um, and just uh, uh, have a look for the popular culture. There's so many books like, like yours, uh, but also films and games and whatever. And people enjoy it, but they do understand that it's fiction. And when we had the Vikings HBO, we had a rush of people who have seen the, the, the series and wanted to know more. They wanted to know, how did that really do that? Is this or that reality? And they wanted to know more. Uh, and that's so, so beautiful. And it's yeah, your that's, country that's created a... Norseman. Uh, yeah, Norseman is great. No, it's a double-edged sword, though, because there is that um, there is a, a, a study done that have Stanford. It's on my blog, uh, but it it uh, what it was asking the question of was how many people go on to actually research thing from, things from this these historical shows versus how many people assume that that what these historical shows are presenting is true. And uh, moreover, they studied students in classes where they showed historical films, and they found that the students remembered the false things on a much higher frequency that, or, or, or you know, uh, uh, much 
you know, they, they remember, hang on, let me back up. They remember the false things, not the real things. Right. And then they also didn't care enough to go figure out which was which. And so with these shows, I always say it's a double-edged sword because yes, we're trying to inspire and we're trying to, um, we're, we're trying to get people interested, but at the same time, the, the data shows that it's, it, it can do a lot of damage if you're doing it wrong, if you're purposely doing it. And so that's why I have a big problem with like the show, uh, Vikings that was on the history channel because here that's the history channel it there's a presumption uh-huh. of authority and legitimacy there and and then they made a mini doc about the making of the show talking about how historically accurate it was and and then within the first episode it was just like this is all wrong <laughs> and, and that so that's a so it's a double-edged uh-huh. sword right so that's why as a as a as a historical fiction writer I'm uh intrinsically interested in this in this mixture of you know fact from fiction and that's why at the end of my books i like to put the historical note and say this is what's real and this is what's not here's where i deviated here's where you know and and uh to to the degree of i have a a historical companion that i want to release eventually that talks about the actual history because there's enough for a whole book there uh but because i don't want people to get the wrong idea right i'm not here to give people the wrong idea i'm here to to inspire people to learn more and in fact i even put a bibliography in my third book because it was just to say hey for the whole series here's my you know dig into this like go have fun right um so yeah so it's a, there's that fine line is it, we're all walking a tightrope uh but then you have the the big corporatists that are like yeah make money we don't care and then there's the people who are like no we want to have accurate representations of history (laughs) yeah well it's like what you talked about last week too right where you know and that i've written about as well as this idea of the you know when you engage with the past and you see kind of what you want to see and with a period like the viking age because of the issues that we have with sources of not having anything written by them directly um, it's an easy place to just sort of fill in the gaps with what you want, right? Because it doesn't exist really. So you can kind of play around with it quite a bit more. And yeah, I mean, and people are all over the map. I mean, we had a Scandinavian heritage fair this weekend uh, in Portland and I went yesterday and um, there was a man there. Actually, I got his name for UCJ. I can't remember it now, but I have his card. But anyway, so he writes historical fiction set in the Viking age, and he's given me his spiel, and he doesn't know anything about who I am or what my background is. And it's like, oh, this story is set in this part where these women are part of this, you know, court thing, and they all vote, and it shows that that's actually how the, you know, powerful women took their power during the Viking age. And I'm kind of like, mm, you know, and then and then I got involved with somebody in in an Instagram going back and forth, and again, it was like the powerful women thing, and it's kind of like, okay. All right, I don't want to be like that person who's always kind of like, you know, that's not, I mean, it's it's not really a thing or it's only partially a thing, but the modern conception of some of these ideas about Vikings, it's just, it's so big, you know, that it's hard to sort of chip away and start, you know, you know, breaking people's, you know, interest in the subject because you're sort of taking away the stuff that they really want to hang on to. Like there were shield maidens, you know? Or well, you can always go like, perhaps but it's yeah. it's not so exciting though yeah exactly like fine just have your shield maiden it's all right so well speaking speaking a little bit to that you know when we talk about my my whole salt theory right which we come back to at regular intervals and and it's uh recently it's been kind of one of those you know trying to change my lens on it because we all approach things from our own certain lens and I was so convinced that you know oh you know it's it salt must have been why the Vikings went as far as Western France so so soon, 
Uh, and then that's also why they kept going back year after year after year after year. But then I thought about it and um, it was actually part of a couple of conversations that we had where we really dug into the slavery piece of it, where slaves were incredibly valuable. And that's really what they were going after early on. And if you look at the market kingdoms, you know, from Tom Horn that he talks about, you know, there's silver, right? But there's also slaves in Ireland. And so if you look at the trajectory that they went, I thought about it. I was like, hmm, I wonder if it wasn't the salt. I wonder if the salt was drawing, right? So so if they're attacking and they're taking all the salt farmers and, and monks as slaves and leaving, right? And then they come back the next year and there's a bunch of salt farmers and monks again, <laughs> right? So it's not that they were going for the salt. It's just that, and we know that the that salt production was mission critical to the Carolingians. They tracked the trade of salt with meticulous precision. We have all those records. And in, and salt production started to increase during the Viking raids as well, which is really curious. But then they also had two or three tax exemptions that happened in the 820s and 830s to try and encourage people to move to the island to produce more salt. So what they were inadvertently doing was increasing the population of the island. The Vikings would show up and be like, hey, look, they just refilled the whole population. Let's take them home, you know, <laughs> and that could have been the draw. But I. I would I couldn't see that before because I was so interested in like the you know so it just speaks to that lens where it puts blinders on us sometimes and so it's really important to always try to stay as open as possible and take in information from all over and always be really cautious about what we're saying is true and not true to your point Ellen I like the you know maybe sort of could have may have happened isn't the sexiest thing uh, but I love keeping I like I love keeping it kind of with that ambiguity because we do, ultimately there's so much that we don't know. Although it sounds like your new museum now is going to be like a mix of a lot of good stuff. Like there's going to be something for everybody, you know, whatever mindset you sort of bring into it when you walk in there, there's probably going to be something that you're going to going to connect with. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, it's we, we, we do get kind of stressed out because it's also a responsibility. We, we have all those objects. We have all this incredible, interesting story and information uh, about the past that we really want to make uh, possible to people to dig into. And we want to do it right. Uh, and we also know that we can't display everything we can't say everything we need to leave something out and that's a bit painful well so we've got wish we're we're in an hour here so i want to be mindful of your your evening and your time so i've got my usual existential question cj so i'll unless you have something should i fire away we'll just go for it so um yeah, kind of getting back to what we were saying about like a lot of Scandinavian history and we're sort of honing in on this very small slice and you've got the artifacts and all of that. But, you know, in, in your mind, and I've seen you like on Viking TV and stuff, and I mean, you definitely um, strike me as a person who has a lot of passion for this um, stuff. Um, <laughs> right. But but it does sort of beg the question, um, you know, in the grand scheme of human history, why does or should any of this matter? It matters because history matters. It's not because it's the Vikings. It's because it is the past. It's because it, it is human. It's a way to learn something about ourselves, make us understand ourselves, and ideally do not repeat the mistakes of those people who have lived before us. So for me, it's like 
getting insight and knowledge about the humans of the past is not the objects who are interesting as the humans. And they give information and insight in myself and in my own society. That's kind of the same conclusion we had last time, isn't it, CJ? The Vikings are human, just like us. They, they are, and they have something to teach us. And then they are simply fascinating. But what's in, fascinating is the human things with it. It's humans who are fascinating. Yeah. I think actually I heard Neil Price say that. It's like, I, I, I don't admire them, but I find them endlessly interesting. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you, there, there were slave tra traders and violent people. And I don't admire that at all, but I'm fascinating. Right, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really great. I can't wait to get back over there. My husband's family is from Stavanger, and so we'll be back really? in, in Norway at some Me point. Oh, oh, nice. Oh, that's great. I thought it'd be interesting for him to hear. But yeah, so we'll we'll be back over there at some point, I'm sure. Um, and, and so then also, so everyone knows, so the museum is slated to open the new one in what, 2025 or 26? Yeah, I'm afraid that this is going to take some time. So 26 is more likely than 25, yes. Okay. But but like in time for the summer season, is that what people what you're shooting for? The we don't have we don't have the exact opening date really. Uh, sorry. Uh but I hope it will be as soon as possible. I'm waiting myself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well it's time to put in the the objects properly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll look forward to it whenever it is.